Now at this time, I'm gonna ask you to open back up to the book of Romans as we uh, begin uh, our journey through the first eight chapters of Romans, but just the first half of chapter one this morning. If you could finish this sentence, how would you finish it? God is fill in the blank. How would you fill in that blank? God is blank. You fill it in. How would you complete that sentence? In a room this big with this many people with different experiences, I'm sure there'd be a wide range of words that fit that blank. God is love. God is a refuge. But there's some that would probably be more neutral. God is distant. God is mysterious. And there'd be some, I'm sure, that are quite negative. Maybe you think God is silent. Just out of curiosity, I, went, I wanted to see how Google would finish that sentence. You know how you can autocomplete your search? And I said, God is, and just to see what would come up. And you can be sure that there were a wide range of words that came into the blank. Some were correct. For example, God is for us, which I'm glad to see Google had that come into the autocomplete. God is for us. Some were incorrect. God is a woman came up. Probably doesn't surprise you, but it's incorrect. And then some were just confusing. God is a dancer. I'm led to believe that's a song that's on the radio. I wouldn't know, but that's what Google tells me. Now, if we were to ask Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul, how would you finish that sentence? God is, fill in the blank for us, Apostle, what would he say? Now, believe it or not, the book of Romans, for all of its length and depth and complexity and confusing passages, most of it is pushing us towards one word in the blank there. One. Most of it is pushing us to complete that sentence with one idea. Romans is massive. I mean, Romans is like 7,000 words long. If I were to just read it straight through, it would take an hour to read. And you know, you've tried to read Romans. It's confusing, It's hard. It gets a lot easier to read when you recognize that most of what's happening is that Paul is trying to fill in that blank and demonstrate and explain and proclaim that God is righteous. That is the key word. That is a massive concept in the book of Romans that's going to make sense of a lot of the confusing and complex parts of this letter. It is all driving towards a simple idea that God is righteous. He is righteous. Verse 17, you can see it. Look at 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is is revealed. Now, that concept of being revealed is really important. The fact that God's righteousness is something revealed to us in the gospel. Now, when I was young, I remember I was a very young boy at this time. My dad, I saw him outside 
chopping wood. Okay, now this doesn't happen very often in Florida. We didn't need a whole lot of firewood in Florida, but we did do it occasionally. And I remember it because it really made an impression on me seeing my dad chopping wood because he looked like the strongest man in the world to a little kid like me, standing in awe of him just obliterating these blocks of wood. Now, it's not that I didn't know he was strong. In fact, I knew that very well. I knew that ahead of time. I knew he was very strong. I have tried to wrestle him before with my brothers. I knew he was very, I knew his forearms could just pop me like a balloon. Now, you're, you're probably wondering right now, <laughs> why didn't I get any of that strength? I'm built like my mom. I have two brothers, and they're built like my dad. They are very strong. They're bulky. They look like lumberjacks, and appropriately so, because I saw my dad obliterating blocks of wood, and I thought, wow, I always knew he was strong, but now I see a demonstration, yes, a revelation of his strength. Paul is saying that the gospel is the demonstration of God's righteousness. We've always known he's righteous. His word tells us he's righteous. We believe he's righteous, but the gospel shows it in a new way. The gospel is an unveiling and a demonstration and a revealing of God's righteousness. That is why Paul is excited by the gospel. That is why Paul suffers beatings and imprisonment and flogging. And he gives up his past life and all his achievements, and he considers them done, is what he says. Because the gospel, because the gospel reveals who God is in a completely new way. And so in other words, what we're going to see repeated and explained and demonstrated and defended and proclaimed in this letter of Romans is God's righteousness. Now, what does it mean? Because I'm sure you're wondering, what does it mean that he's righteous? What does the righteousness of God mean? Mean. Now, unfortunately, it's not an easy concept. How do you define righteousness? There's not one quick definition. It's a complex thing. It's like, what does it mean that God is holy? You can't just give a quick definition to that. It's a complex idea. It's a big idea, and so is the righteousness of God. It's a big idea. And so I'm going to explain two aspects of what the righteousness of God is, two aspects that will come out again and again through the chapters in Romans, but they are both here, and they're both very important, they're both related, but they both express what Paul means by the righteousness of God. The first aspect is that the righteousness of God refers to God's character of being upright righteous and reliable. It means that God is trustworthy. Very simple idea, but it's actually very, very profound that God is trustworthy. He is the kind of God you can trust in. Now, to explain that, we need to flip around in the Bible just briefly, but look down at verse 17, and you'll recall that Paul quotes 
something. Down at the end of 17, see, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Where does that come from? Well, the footnote tells us it comes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Now, my students tease me for the way I pronounce biblical books. So please spare me your ridicule if that didn't come out the way you expected it to come out. But I'm going to stick with Habakkuk, and we're going to flip there and look at Habakkuk just for a moment. Now, um, just to help you, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's on page 940. I know you'll never find it. It's worth going there to look at what I'm about to say because this is really important. And I think you'll appreciate actually looking at it because the book of Habakkuk begins with a sentence that you probably didn't think you're allowed to say. Look at verse two. This is page 940, Habakkuk chapter one. Beginning in verse two, the prophet says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Can you imagine saying that to God? Did you know that the prophet is allowed to say that to God? How long are you going to ignore me, God? Now, God responds to the prophet. Very interesting. Now, skip over to chapter 2. Look down at verse four. This is part of God's response to the prophet who's asking, God, where are you and why don't you answer me? Over at chapter two, beginning in verse verse two. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits its appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And here's where Paul quotes, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Okay, back to Romans now. The prophet Habakkuk was dealing with particular problems in his own experience. The righteous were suffering. The political leadership was corrupt. The Assyrian armies were knocking at the door and the prophet says, where are you, God? I've been asking for your help. It's very, very interesting that Paul quotes from that book and he quotes from God's response to Habakkuk's question because your question is probably not the same as Habakkuk. Your question is probably not, why are the Assyrians knocking at my door? But your problem is probably somewhat similar in that you have probably been asking God to answer you. And you have something going on, perhaps many things going on in your own life that have to do with health or finances or loved ones or children. 
some deep, deep problem that is causing you to lay awake at night and say, how long, oh Lord, am I going to call for your help and you do not listen? Maybe you've never actually expressed that out loud, but it's what you're thinking. It's what you're feeling down deep. Now, that is really significant because the reason why Paul quotes from Habakkuk is because he believes that the gospel is the demonstration of God's answer to that question. Look at what he says. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God reveals himself to be the one who says something and does what he says he's going to do. God reveals himself to be the kind of person, the kind of God that does what he says he's going to do. And therefore, he is upright. Therefore, he is trustworthy. Therefore, he is reliable. So God's answer to Habakkuk's question is the gospel and the demonstration of his righteousness in the gospel, in the sending of Jesus Christ. And that means that the gospel is also the answer to your question as well. The gospel is the answer to the question you're asking as well. How long? God, are you there? God, do you care? Don't you see? Don't you hear? Won't you do anything about this? The answer to that question is look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God's upright character is revealed. All of a sudden, this becomes really relevant. All of a sudden, Romans becomes actually quite relevant to your real life because what's happening is Paul is saying that God has acted in Jesus Christ to demonstrate himself to be someone who is trustworthy, the kind of God you can and must believe in and trust and put your hope and put your faith in. What is it for you? What is it? in your life and in your heart that's making you ask, how long, O Lord? Whatever it is, God's answer has been given. The day of his answer is here. The day of his response is here, and it's in the gift of the gospel. So the plain implication for us this morning is that For all of us who are searching for proof that God is reliable, that God is someone worth trusting, look no further than the gospel. Look no further than the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. God's action in Jesus, his action in sending Christ is a plain demonstration that he is someone who can be trusted. That is what Romans is all about, and Paul is going to explain that in so many different ways, and he's going to defend it and proclaim it as we go forward. But we must talk about the second aspect of the righteousness of God. Remember, it's got two aspects. The first has to do with God's attribute of being upright and righteous, but it also has to do with an action of God, not just an attribute, also an action of God. And so when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, very often he's appealing to and referring to something God has done. And what has he done? He has given a gift 
of righteousness. And you can see that in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. That means it's grasped by faith. It is given and received by faith, by the one who believes, not just for the Jew, he says, but also for the Gentile. This is going to be explained very clearly in chapter 4, where we hear about Abraham. Abraham is declared righteous by God on the basis of his faith. There is a a young man I know. um, I knew him well when we were young, um, and we lost touch over the years. Uh, Our lives took very different paths. Um, He came from a broken home. His parents were divorced when he was young, and his life uh, fell apart when he was in his teens. He um, didn't finish high school. He didn't go to college. While I was finishing high school and going to college, um, he was not. And he was not because he was hopelessly addicted to alcohol and drugs. And it was such a bad, serious, deep, deep addiction that he couldn't hold a job. He wouldn't show up. And he had a criminal record for drunk driving. And the criminal record kept growing and growing and growing, all before the end of his teenage years. What does the letter of Romans have to say to him? See, like most of the time, the book of Romans and so many biblical books seem aloof from real, the real world. They seem to be the stuff of debate for theologians in an ivory tower somewhere, but it never actually touches the lives of real people. What does the book of Romans say to somebody like that? Does it have anything to say? What does the gospel say to him? Does it wrap him on the knuckles and say, stop it? That's maybe how we think the gospel would respond to someone like that. Verse 16 is how the gospel is relevant to someone like that. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Power is what the gospel brings to those who are in deep darkness. Power. Very often we think that the gospel is God's weakness. It's God relenting and being nice. It's God forgiving sin and saying, it's okay, they're there. Jesus loves you. The gospel is not God's weakness. The gospel is God's power. How so? The gospel brings power to give life. It's not just here in verse 16. Look back at the beginning of the chapter, verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The event that reveals The righteousness of God reveals the power of life-giving salvation to everyone who believes. See, 
what we're learning here is that God not only created the world, but he began a work of new creation and recreation in the resurrection of Jesus. That's nothing less than giving life where there is death. And that's exactly what happens when sinners believe life from death. Only something God can do to take someone who is in the depths of the darkest day and God can make it light. So my friend (laughs) has met the power of God in the gospel. Praise God. And five years running now, he has been clean and sober. He has a steady job. He is happily married. In his spare time, he works with young offenders, mentoring them, discipling them, and he wants one day to go into ministry. Now, why is that the case? It is the case because the gospel brings God's power to give life and to change lives. See, the thing about the gospel is that it changes lives every day all around the world. Millions of people have their lives transformed by the power of God. Christianity is not just some philosophy. It's not a new list of rules for you to follow. It is an encounter with power, creating power of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I mention his story not because I think you need to have a dramatic conversion too. Okay? I'm not saying you need to have a, you know, like a black and white dramatic uh, story like that. I don't have a story like that. My story is pretty boring, and that's okay. But the reason why I do tell that story is because if the power of the gospel is such that it gives life in a situation like that, what does it say about your situation? It says that God's power is sufficient in that situation as well and in yours, whatever you are going through. You might be saying, there's no way God would want me to be part of his family. There's no way. I've done too much. I'm too far away. Or maybe you're thinking about someone else. There's no way God wants them to be part of his family. He, he or she has done far too much, far too many bad things. There's no way But if you think that, you are misjudging the power of God, his life-giving, creative power. Paul himself knows the power of the gospel because he calls himself the chief of sinners because he persecuted and abused Christians until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so if I was the Apostle Paul and I had been saved from a life like that, I probably wouldn't be as bold as Paul was in his proclamation of the gospel. I would probably sit back in a corner, maybe in the back of the church, and try not to make be a nuisance to anybody because I'm so ashamed of my past. And yet Paul is the loudest supporter and the loudest proclaimer of the gospel because he had experienced it in his own life. So you and I must never be ashamed of the gospel. Like in your workplace and in your neighborhood and among your acquaintances, among your wider family, among your friends, you must not be ashamed of the gospel. We are tempted to be because the world tells us it's something shameful. It's something private. You can be a Christian. That's fine. Just don't tell me about it. 
Keep it in your personal space and don't bother me with it. That's what the world says. But why would I do that if it's the one thing that has the power to change lives? Why would I do that? Why would I be ashamed if it's the one thing in this world that has power? God's power to change life. And that's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we ought not to be either. It's something to be proud of. Finally, closing thought. We must learn to see what's happening in our lives with new eyes. We must learn, each one of us must learn how to interpret our lives and the experiences of our lives in new light, in the light of the gospel. And that means that whatever you are going through now, whatever you're experiencing, the suffering, the darkness, the difficulties, the stresses and trials that you experience in your life, do not vanish in the gospel. They take on new meaning in the gospel. We see them differently now because God has proven to us that he has not given up on this world. He has proven to us in this demonstration of his righteousness that he has absolutely not given up on this world. He is not done with it. In fact, he has begun a work of new creation. Begins in your heart. and goes outward from there. And one day we will see it consummated and fulfilled. But we must see our present circumstances with new eyes, with eyes of faith, with eyes that trust, with eyes that believe, because God has already proven himself to be righteous, trustworthy, and completely upright. That is the kind of God he is. And if that is the kind of God he is, what should my life look like in response? That's the question I want to leave you with. And I want to bounce around in your head for the next few weeks as we go through the book of Romans. Let's close here and I'll say a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for the mighty power that we see in creation and in the work of the empty tomb that we see Christ Jesus raised from the dead. We pray that you would instill within us faith and love and hope. Faith in your promises, hope for the new world, and love for you and for one another. Do this, we pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit, working within us that we might be like Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.